and honest to goodness blizzard, and we had to cancel services for last week, which was intensely frustrating for me. So it's been two weeks since we've seen each other. Uh, it's good to be back. It's good to have the church gathered in one place. And if you want to feel kind of good about yourself as Grace Point Church, we were, I think, the last church to cancel in the area. We kind of held on as long as we could, and then it just became clear we were not checking our, uh, the parking lot was kind of openly the dividing factor. We would not have a, a clean parking lot. We had about two feet of snow in most of it, so it would have been interesting uh, getting everybody in and out. And uh, for me personally, it's been an interesting couple weeks of uh, a lot of work and a lot of uh, working with our crews and uh, the, the plow operators. And you know, if you're a guy, pulling somebody out of a ditch or uh, over a berm with your pickup, that, that feels good. You kind of like that as a guy. You got a four-wheel drive pickup, you got good tires, you got a tow strap. The romance goes away after about the fifth or sixth, and it kind of gets a little old after that. And it's not as much fun, but we've had. Uh, a lot of fun. We've had a lot of outpouring of support from uh, the citizens towards the plow crews and our emergency responders. Uh, there's some great pictures and some great stories out there. We've got one of a firefighter on top of a snowbank, and the, the bottom of the snowbank, or at the top of the snowbank, just peeking out was a, a basketball hoop, which is a pretty cool picture, actually, just to see some of the levels of drifts and plows we've had. Um, it's been neat to see the community come together. I don't know if you were a part of it, but I would hope in your neighborhoods you were able to help out neighbors uh, driving around. I got a little choked up because every, every neighborhood I drove down on, I guess it was a week ago, might have been Wednesday, I don't know when it was. It, it was in the past. And the whole neighborhood was out. Everybody was out, it seemed, with a shovel helping each other out. And that's just a beautiful thing. And that's a good example of the church. Next couple weeks, um, we want to, or at least I, want to make sure that we set Gary up. We don't want to give up on James for a couple weeks, and I don't want to preach it. Three or four sermons that had nothing to do with James. So the, the attempt right now is to continue with James, but not the verses, not do expository preaching from James, but fill in the gaps a little bit. There's a lot of history that goes on between sentences in the Bible, and we want to look into those gaps a little bit. And some of it's in other places in the Bible, some of it's from histories that are extra biblical. And we're going to fill in, talk about James, talk about the time James lived in, and talk a little bit about what was going on in the church when James was a leader in the church. And we're going to kind of struggle with what I would call kind of the big questions of the day of James' age. And the funny thing, these are the same questions we struggle with today. Dave's incredible testimony. Um, with the whole image of Dave on a desert island, uh, with a knife in his mouth and the New Testament. And that's I think, a story that you hear about, right? That's just a cool, anyways. Um, Dave talked about who am I, what do I have to do, what's my purpose in life, what's the meaning of life? That's the same thing that James was struggling with and people throughout time have struggled with. And we're gonna struggle with it for the next couple weeks. And the, the main thing you're gonna hear about is the theme is salvation. What do you have to do to be saved? And being very technical about what that is exactly, I think is the most important question you'll ever wrestle with. What must I do to be saved? And you can start with the question, is it what you do or what God did? It's really that fundamental. Is it something that you do that makes you righteous, that will give you eternal life? Or is it what God has already done? That's the main question for the next couple weeks. That's the main question that James dealt with. 
And to set this up and introduce it, I want to start with a, and start and end actually with a quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He was a 19th century Baptist minister, one of the best writers I've ever read. This is a long quote, so just kind of relax a little bit and let this kind of flow over you. James, or, uh, Charles Spurgeon is talking about salvation here. Men dream that by a strict performance of duty they shall obtain favor. But God saith thus, I will show men their folly by proclaiming a law so high that they will despair of attaining unto it. They will think that by works they will be sufficient to save themselves. They think falsely, and they will be ruined by their mistake. I will send them a law so terrible in its censures, so unflinching in its demands, that they cannot possibly obey it, and they will be driven even to desperation, and they will come and accept my mercy through Jesus Christ. They cannot be saved by the law. I know they have foolishly hoped to keep my law, and they think by works of the law they may be justified, whereas I, God, have said, by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. Therefore, I will write a law. It shall be a black and a heavy one, a burden which they cannot carry. And then they will turn away and say, I will not perform it. I will ask my Savior to bear it for me. Charles Spurgeon, pretty smart guy, great writer. I also took a look at Calvin. You might be familiar with Calvin. Noted theologian. He talked about the impossibility of following the law. Not the Calvin you were probably thinking of, was it? <laughs> this is Calvin as in Calvin and Hobbes. You may or may not be familiar with it. If you're not familiar with it, I would really encourage you to get familiar with it. But Calvin is a small boy. He has a stuffed tiger that comes alive for him, and I don't need to get into the, the doctrine of that. But Calvin at Christmas time had a heck of a hard time. Because at Christmas, Calvin felt like he had to be perfect. He couldn't be bad, couldn't get in fights because he wanted to get Christmas presents. And if it's too small to read, the basic gist of the cartoon is this little boy can't break the law in order to get his Christmas presents. And as he talks about that, his tiger rolls his eyes and they get into a fight. Now Calvin has violated the law and he won't get his Christmas presents. And if you follow the script, every Christmas Calvin went through the difficulties, the impossibility of following the law. So, noted Calvin, theologian, talking about salvation as well, slightly. The law is impossible to follow. That's the important part. And in fact, that starts our central question for the day. And this will be our central question for several things. What must I do to be justified? What must I do to be saved? And the answer is, I don't like to you know, have you wait in suspense. You believe in Christ. What must I do to be justified? Believe in Christ. That's our central question for the day. And it's the central question by which the book of James was written. Same idea. What must I do to be justified? And to prove that answer, we'll be looking at the book of James, we'll be looking at the Gospel of John, and we'll be in Acts, and we'll be in a few other histories talking about some other things. Let me pray real quick. We'll take this open. Heavenly Father, as we are your church gathered in one place, Father, we ask this morning that your spirit would teach us that your word would be illuminated, that your word would be implanted in our hearts, and we would all, each one of us, leave here closer to you than we are right now. Father, I pray that it would not be my words that go out this morning, it would be your words through your Holy Spirit over the top of the studies that I've done, and that, Father, anything that I do this morning that would violate your trust, 
Father, be corrected by your Holy Spirit, the hearts of the listeners. Father, in this we pray in the name of Grace Point, excuse me, in the name of Jesus Christ, all of us at Grace Point say, Amen. Uh, broadly, next two weeks, at least, here's your outline. And you have an outline in your notes, but if you'd like to keep it really simple, the first part of it is simply justification. What does it mean to be justified? The second part that we'll be looking at is a history of the early church, kind of what was going on in the first century of the church's existence. And the third part will be the impact of the man James on the early church. And if you like symmetry, the impact James had on the church had to do with justification. What, is it? what do you have to do to be saved? So James is integral to this question in the first establishment of the church. And it's pretty interesting because we have this connection with James because we struggle. What do I have to do to be justified? You go to different churches in this community and you'll hear different things. Um, we try to be very clear about what we believe and I'll be teaching very much the Grace Point belief system for the next couple of weeks of what does it mean to be justified? You have to believe in Christ and that's it. So I believe and do something, not believe and be circumcised, not believe and follow the law, not believe and quit smoking, whatever. doesn't matter. Believe and you're saved. And we'll talk about that today. And if you hear me say the word justified or salvation, you probably know what the next slide is going to be and why I'm walking over this side of the church, right? <laughs> salvation has three parts. When you see the word saved in the Bible, it might mean justification, it might mean sanctification, and it might mean glorification. And because English is a kind of a, I don't want to say a dumbed-down language, but I'll say it. It's a dumbed-down language. It has very loose definitions, whereas Greek and Hebrew are very specific. So, justification is the first tense of your salvation. It's a past tense thing. When you believed, you were justified. And at that very moment in the past, you were saved from the penalty of sin. The guilt was taken away. You will never be held guilty for your sin when you're justified. A single point in the past. As we move through life, after we're justified, we're not taken up to heaven right away, right? Well, why? That's a big, that's a big answer. But part of it is, is to be sanctified, where we are ongoing, every day, being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. When you were justified, the Holy Spirit entered your life, and the Holy Spirit gives you the power to overcome temptation, to overcome sin's power over you. Now, all of us fail at that on a pretty routine basis, but we get better, we get more mature, we get closer to God as our daily walk in life. We should, on every day, you know, we'll have ups and downs, but our life should be getting more mature in Christ and having more knowledge, being looking at our lives look more like Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. And sometimes the Bible says the word saved, but it, it, the specific definition is sanctification. Someday we'll be glorified. Might be tomorrow, might be years from now, might be decades from now, but we'll be in the presence of God and we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. The only sign of sin in heaven will be the wounds on Christ's body. That's it. There will be no sin in heaven. So when we talk about being saved, there's three kind of parts of it, past, present, future. And for the most part, the future is pretty easy to identify in the Bible. When they talk about being in heaven, that's glorification. But these two kind of get mixed up in our heads. It happens, and that's important. And your, your guide for figuring that out does come down to context a lot. And 
We're going to talk about salvation. That was the first thing we're going to talk about today. It's okay, be specific. What does James have to say about salvation? What does the Bible have to say about these three parts? And what does it have to do? And we're going to do that talking about justification, first bit of salvation, in kind of a fun, interactive question and answer format. So the first question for you is, or you might ask me even, is, um, you know, what are the requirements for justification? You might ask, what are the requirements for justification. What are the requirements? That's a great, that's a great question. It's simple. It's belief. Okay, John 3.16, whoever believes shall have eternal life. Do you see anything else after believes? Do you see circumcision? Do you see follow the law? Do you see refrain from eating pork? Do you see, no. Whoever believes shall have eternal life. Justification is belief, pure and simple. You might ask, who's eligible for justification? Also a great question. Who's eligible? Everyone. Everyone is eligible. This is what we all read together during the, the service this morning. Uh, out of John chapter 4, the woman at the well. We've talked about this a lot the next couple weeks. When Jesus is speaking of such people, he means everyone. Okay, justification, being saved, being in the Christian church, is not just for Americans. It's not just for people in Ukraine. It's not just for Northern European descent people. It's not just for Jews. It's for everyone. And as you might think, well, yeah, um, that's actually a pretty radical concept back in the day. Justification is for everyone. Everyone is welcome in God's church. You might ask, is my justification complete? Great question. Um, it turns out, yes. We talked about this around the first of the year. In Jesus Christ, you might say, last words on earth, um, he said it is finished. Done. Complete. Irrevocably. Fully. Totally. Eternally. Unconditionally complete. And again, an amen. amen. God saved you. You didn't save you. God saved you. And what God does, no human can break. Okay, it's pretty simple on that. If you think about God's power versus your power, if God did it, only God can break it. And God promised you that will never happen. So when you were accepted Jesus Christ, when you were justified, you were 100% done. That cannot be changed by anything you could do. No one can break what God has done. So, it is finished is a big deal. And when you're reading your Bible, I'm, you know, I'm not a, a super well-educated person. So when I'm reading my Bible, sometimes I see saved, and I have to think about it. Does that mean justification or sanctification? Your guide to that is context. You know, what, what's the context? And that's pretty easy to look up. You just look back a little bit and, and look at the start of the chapter, and sometimes there's notes and things like that that can help you, but it's usually right there in the Bible. And context is a big deal. I got this from Marcus Plagerman the other day. Best thing I've ever seen on the internet for quite a while. <laughs> Hey, think about that for a second, right? It's not about us. about what God's Word says. Okay? Context comes from the Word. Context does not come from me, the reader. Context does not come from you, the reader. Context comes from God and God's Word. And that's why it's so important to know context, because context will tell you what the guidance is. So when we look at James, Gary did a whole sermon on this. I just want to hit this again, because it's important. 
the context of James, when you look about it, James talks about save a lot. This is saved, be saved, do this. Which one is he talking about? Well, you start at verse 2 of chapter 1, right at the very beginning. James addresses the book to the brethren. Brethren. That means believers. People who are already justified. So when James talks about you should do this or not do this, what he's saying is, it's not about to be saved. It's not about to be justified. It's about to be sanctified. He's Brethren means people that are already justified. You wouldn't tell people to do something different if they're already saved. You with me on that? This is important. Are you with me on this? Good. Because the great Martin Luther said, we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continuously. So if you're not getting it, I have to follow the advice of Martin Luther, and that's not going to be good for everybody. So... This is a big deal. Understand the book of James is about sanctification, about being more like Jesus Christ. It's not what you have to do to be saved. It's what you have to do to be matured, what you have to do to show Christ's likeness to others. You are already saved if you're reading the book of James as a believer, which it was written to. Okay? Let's flip up. That's the, the, the sanctification, justification portion of the sermon. If you're following notes, we're kind of in the middle part, a little bit of history. And I put together a timeline, because sometimes timelines are kind of help us put things in order. A quick warning to any timeline. Okay, there's these little points go right to specific dates, right? Understand the Bible wasn't written to teach you a timeline. It was written for your soul. And these timelines can be a little fuzzy. Some of those points, they're great, smart people, way smarter than me, disagree on the exact date. I put the exact date because, you know, it just makes sense. But understand they might be a little different, depending on, you know, what you're reading and who you're talking to. That's probably not super important that it's exactly 5 B.C. or 4 and a half B.C. The idea is that these things happen in an order and they are, they're relatively all happen in the same period. Your mileage may vary depending on what you're looking at. This stuff here, we're using the timeline to give you a sense of what was going on in the world at the time the book of James was taking place. And a lot of big things were happening. In fact, I would be remiss as a historian to say this is probably the most significant 70 years in the history of the entire world. Think about this. You could be alive in 5 B.C. before Christmas, the first one. 5 B.C., you're a Jewish believer. God has not spoken to the human race in 400 years. There's this massive gap. There's this long period of silence. And then God enters the world in 5 B.C., give or take. You could be an old man out here at 62 when James was martyred. 5 B.C., no sign of God, nothing's happened. 62 A.D., Christ has come into the world as a holy man, holy God. The Holy Spirit has entered every believer. The church went from Israel to spread out all across the world. It is a gigantic moving force in the world, and books of the Bible are being written. There are about 21 of them at that point, plus the Old Testament that were around. Not gathered together yet, but they're out there. And so the change that one person could go through in their lifetime 
from where there is no church other than the Jewish church, to now it's full of Gentiles, and it's all across the world, is remarkable. Nothing has ever happened like that in the history of the world, where it went from one thing very small in one place, pretty much just in Israel, to now it's everywhere. We might have gone, give or take, how you want to do your math, but from 12 people at around 30 AD to by 100 AD, there might have been as many as a million. This explosive growth. Now, that change is what James lived through. And James, in fact, was the leader of the church during the most tumultuous time of that change. And the most of the tumult was about one question. What must I do to be saved? How am I justified? And that will be the big thing that James is going to wrestle with. So talking about this is kind of a big deal to the church during this time period. And there was a lot of change for believers. If you were a Jew, God was for you. And Gentiles were a part of the picture. And obviously now Gentiles get to be a part of the picture. So looking at this, I want to kind of look at maybe, say, five big changes. And the notes I didn't make a one through five. You can follow along. We're talking about the history and the timeline after that. Um, we start talking about the changes that happened, that God appearing. Five big things happened. The first big thing that happened was salvation, all three tenses of it, became for everyone, not just Jews. Now Christ introduced that. The first time that came up was when he was at the Jacob's well in John chapter 4 that we read. The Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the Samaritan woman, Christ runs across this woman at this well. And he starts talking to her about salvation and honesty and how worship takes place. And you can blow past that, but what was interesting, he was talking to a Samaritan and a woman, and Christ was a Jew. He was a strong Jew. He was a perfect Jew. And at that time, in the world, on this timeline, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Jews looked down on Samaritans. It would be very equivalent to say that a Jew looked at the Samaritan the way that, say, a stereotypical white person looked at a black person around the Civil War maybe today. It was racial. It was racist. It was derogatory. If you were a Jew and you saw a Samaritan walking down the sidewalk of Jerusalem, you would walk to the other side of the street so you didn't have to be near a Samaritan. Samaritans were bad. And here is our Lord and Savior, the Christ, speaking to this woman and offering her eternal life, talking about the kingdom of heaven, about who will be there. He offered that. And that's the first sign we get that salvation is not just for the Jewish people. And if you see these arrows, we'll talk about this a lot next week, but the church from Genesis on to this point had been focused on the Jews. That was God's plan. And you'll see this transition time we're in, where all of a sudden the, you might think the center of attention will be with the Gentiles. But God's not done with the Jewish people yet. But the focus is that the church becomes for everybody. The focus will be on the Gentiles, all of us, assuming that you're not racially Jewish. Um, that's good for us. And that shows you kind of the big part of God. The fact that Christ was talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, that, that's a whole other cultural unpacking we could go through. But this was not a, uh, yeah, the Me Too movement would not have a lot of, uh, of depth in ancient Israel, the Jewish people. That men and women were pretty segregated as well. So, 
Jesus is breaking a lot of barriers here to talk about this church is for everybody. God loves everyone. And that's a big deal. Second thing I've kind of mentioned, the center of activity of the Jewish church, of the church, of the Christian church, will move from Jerusalem and it will start to grow. And so it's not just in Israel. It will start moving where big churches were found in Antioch, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Philadelphia, in Rome. Eventually they'll become to Spain, to France, to Turkey, and grow and grow and all the way up to England, which at the end of the first century, the known world for the Westerners, it covers all of it. Africa, eventually into Asia. The church will be growing. It's not just the center in one regional geographically. It's not just does God's church grow in terms of people. It grows in terms of the area going on. This is the time of James. The church is exploding across the known world. Third big change is, again, with I'm repeating myself just a little bit, the size of the church goes from very small to probably impossible to count. They didn't keep a lot of data. They didn't have, you know, like we do today, take polls. But the church probably went to as high as a million believers by the end of the first century. By 99 AD, probably a million believers on the planet. Now there's more. But what's interesting is at the same time on this timeline, this explosive growth in the church and the church opening up, what else was happening? Oppression, crucifixion, discrimination, laws, Roman emperors, etc., etc., etc. And yet the church exploded. All the Romans had to do was produce a body, and this religion would be stillborn. That's all they had to do. But they couldn't body wasn't there. The church grew. God's word went forth. Fourth big thing is there were a lot of divisions in the church. And this is all starting to take place at, so right around here we have Easter when Christ was crucified. And that's roughly AD 30 to AD 62. So a lot of what we're going to talk about now is a 30 year period at best. It's a very short time span. But in that time, all of a sudden there were these divisions in the church. There were racial divisions. You had Jews and Gentiles. They didn't necessarily get along. Again, kind of like the South in America, or just about any other country that whatever racial divisions you have. There were also divisions in practices. Gentiles did things differently than the Jews, and methods of justification or arguments about that. There were legalism discussions versus people said, hey, I'm saved. I can do anything I want. That's called licentiousness. And they were all crazy partying people, and then there are people that were super strict, that followed the Jewish code, the, the 613 guidelines in the Old Testament. You have to do all these things in order to be, to be saved, and there were big arguments about that. There was things about citizenship. The Romans were really big on being citizens. That was an important thing to say, you're a Roman citizen, and so they were, well, I'm not going to be a Roman citizen, I'm a citizen of heaven. Well, I can be both, and they had divisions about that. And then they had a lot of weird stuff where um, there's still idol worship going on, the Roman uh, pantheon of, of gods and goddesses. People were kind of doing that and doing Christian. They kind of made, well, Jesus is just another, and some of the churches got pretty messed up. And if you read your Bible, like some of the ones like the Corinthians, and they're talking about some of that, about how to handle those divisions. But the biggest division of all was this. Are you justified by works of the law? Or are you justified by faith? That was the biggest division of the church in that 30-year period. And I would argue it's still pretty much a division today. 
between churches. What must I do to be saved? It divides us. It's something that we argue about. People are still working on it. And that's what we're going to be working on a lot. We've already talked about believe, and that's it. So, we have a little doctrine this morning about salvation. We're not going to give up on that, you know. We have a little bit of history about what was going on in the church. Let's talk about the man, James. What kind of man was this, this author? We're going to talk a lot about James the next two weeks. Starting that now, and while I'll be using some biblical sources, I'm also going to be applying what I'll call logic and common sense and supposition and implication, as well as some sources that are not from the Bible, like history books that have been written about James. So what I'm going to say about James, take it as interesting, but don't take it as this is like absolute truth the way that we talk about your justification. Are you with me? So it's like a history class for a little while, okay? You're getting kind of some of my, my learning, but don't take this. It's not the same as the biblical truth. That's important. Some things about James. Okay, first off, um, James was not saved. His justification was not as a kid. James was probably saved as an adult. Now think about that. Your half-brother is the Lord and Savior. You watched him grow up, and yet you didn't believe that's interesting to me. Why do we kind of have a feel for that? John 7, 5. You don't need to look up. You can look it up on your own. But it says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Speaking of Christ. So Jesus' brothers did not believe he was the Son of God. That's interesting. That means he's skeptic to that. I don't know. But that's an interesting fact. They thought Jesus was crazy. A little bit. They, were, they didn't know how to respond to that, I guess. But it talks about that in, in John also. And then it has in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. After the crucifixion, the risen Christ, it says, then he, speaking of Christ, after he rose, appeared to James and then to the apostles. Now it's not explicit. It doesn't say when James believed. But I think it's a reasonable thing to assume. In fact, when you read the, the theologians and the great thinkers, they usually point this to be that James was probably saved after seeing the risen Christ, which, you know, that would work for me too. Uh, that would be pretty tough. That'd be, you know, to not believe at that point would be pretty hard to do. Um, so probably James was saved as an adult. Possibly, likely, as best we can tell, after seeing his half-brother risen from the dead. Later on, in Acts 1, verse 14, there are the, the, all the apostles are in the upper room, just before Pentecost. And it's reported that everybody was there, the apostles, Mary, and his brothers. And the very next verse, Peter says, brethren, meaning believers. So somewhere between when Christ rose and Acts 1, which is the same year, Peter, excuse me, Peter addresses James as a believer. So at that point in Acts 1, we know that James was probably a believer, probably as an adult, probably between the crucifixion and um, that first meeting in the upper room there, the day of Pentecost. So I want to talk a little bit about character traits, aptitudes and attitudes of James that we can kind of see. And these are, again, kind of historically based, not necessarily biblically based. First off, James is pretty humble. The book opens with uh, James identifies himself as a bond servant of Christ. 
Now, if you were the half-brother of Jesus Christ, how would you identify yourself today? I mean, I'd have it printed on my business card. I would have t-shirts. Hey, did you know I'm the half-brother of Jesus Christ? Yes, that's me, half-brother of Jesus Christ. Thank you, guys. We, we would brag about that. I mean, that's a human reaction. It's not James. James identifies himself. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's pretty impressive. James took a long time to believe in Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus as a, a kid growing up with Jesus. That means he's skeptical. That means he's slow to believe, maybe. James is a doer. He's very much about doing things. He's practical. James is others-oriented. He's concerned about the church. Um, James was a writer. I guess that might be kind of obvious. Uh, he wrote the book. But think about it. To be a writer with that day and age, it wasn't a word processor. You had to be, to be a writer, had to be patient. You had to be educated. You had to have a little bit of wealth because papyrus, ink, not cheap things. James will be a leader, as we'll talk about a lot next week. He was saved in 30 AD, we think, give or take. By 49 AD, less than 20 years later, he's the leader of the church. He was considered one of the pillars of the church. Um, the Apostle Paul called James, along with Peter and John, a pillar of the church. So James is important. James is not an insignificant player in the Bible. It always comes down to this question of James settling, what do you have to do to be saved? Uh, James is known as wise. We'll talk about that next week. James was a compromiser. We'll talk about that next week. Um, James was known as a guy who prayed. Remember, Derry talked about that James was rusted to have knees that looked like a camel because he was constantly on his knees praying. Um, I would, this is apocryphal, but it's a, a kind of interesting story. I think James was tough, physically. In 62, there'll be a big division in the church, and the church leaders will throw James off the top of the temple, 100 feet or more. He hit the ground and did not die. So they stoned him, and he did not die. And then they clubbed him, and he did die. So tough guy to kill is James. Very apocryphal. There's a church, there's a museum in Toronto, Canada. They claim to have his bones. If you added up all the churches that claim to have a bone of James, there like, there'd be 500 James out there. But for some reason, the early church has a big deal to have a bone of one of the apostles or something. They call them relics. Um, but that's kind of out there. It's also James was kind of noted for having long hair. He never cut his hair. Never cut his beard. He braided his beard. You see a drawing. Of James, he's usually depicted as a man with gray hair, sign of wisdom. He had hair, a little jealous, that's okay. Uh, but his beard was uh, just elaborately done in all these old drawings. No idea if that's true or not, but it was a sign of respect that he had gray hair and was well kept. It was a, a sign of wisdom. He was sometimes called James the Just for his decisions, the decisions he made. Uh, it's just interesting to me to look at the connections we have to James. That James' number one thing he had to wrestle with as a leader was what does it take to be justified? And we still talk about that today. And in fact, in the church, we have an answer that's believe and you're justified. Very much so because of the decision James is going to make that we'll talk about again next week. So I'll invite the worship team to come back up at this time. And as we kind of close out this little history bit on James, about the man about the time you lived in and about uh, this nature of justification and kind of the doctrine of salvation. There's something for you to wrestle with as well. 
even if you've made that decision about how you explain it and what you do with your life and why you do the things you do with your life, do you earn your way to heaven or did God pay the price for you to get to heaven? And how we talk about that with others is important for that. Do you earn your way to heaven by your actions, by following the law, or do you let Christ pay for all that? And whether it's a little kid trying to be good for Santa to get presents, or it's a great theologian like Charles Spurgeon, they write this down that what does it take to be justified? Belief in Jesus Christ, pure and simple. I want to close with another quote from Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon wrote a, a sermon on this topic on being saved, and he likened the law to a mountain. The law is like a mountain on top, and now the sinner says, I cannot climb over that. It is a task beyond Herculean might. But if it not had been for the mountains being too high, the sinner would have gone climbing up, and in climbing up, he would sink into a chasm or be lost under a mighty avalanche, or in some other way perish eternally. The law comes that the whole world might see the impossibility of being saved by works. I see before me a narrow pass called the pass of Jesus Christ's mercy, and the pass of the cross, methinks, I will win my way thither.